This is Frankly Speaking by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Frankly Speaking is your go-to on all things peace, security and defense. Original content, original thought. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm Katerina Villanova and today on the podcast I'm joined by Oksana Antonenko, visiting fellow at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies, and Paul Taylor, senior fellow at Friends of Europe. If, like many of us, you've been wondering what's the point of targeting Russia with economic sanctions and whether they are working or not, today we bring you the answers. They might not be what you expected. There is still a lot of work and fine-tuning to be done, but the message from our experts is clear. The European Union needs to get serious if it wants to close the loophole on sanctions. So stay on that side to listen to my conversation with Oksana Antonenko and Paul Taylor. Hi, Exxon and Paul, thank you so much for joining us today at Frankly Speaking. How are you doing this afternoon? Very well, thank you. Yes, very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. And today the podcast will be all about uh, sanctions evasion, specifically Russia. And I would like to start, Exxon, to ask you, um, so as you probably know, the EU sanctions envoy David O'Sullivan is heading to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan this week as the European Union is seeking to clamp down on the circumvention of Russian sanctions by non-European Union countries. Uh, what, do, in your perception, have third countries, such as uh, these ones in Central Asia, but others such as Turkey, UAE or India, changed their behavior in response to pressure from the West? Well, um, first of all, of course, you know, what we need to know that circumvention of sanctions cannot be eradicated. This is something which is uh, kind of a byproduct of sanctions policy. Uh, and it is also a very dynamic process. So uh, every day, the new uh, circumvention routes uh, and opportunities are opening up. And what I, I think is important for the European Union, and I think they are slowly developing those tools of economic statecraft, which are, of course, you know, uh, challenging oftentimes to develop, is to uh, have three components, I think, of that policy. The first one, you have to have a very strong analytical capacity to analyze and understand how those convention practices are evolving uh, in a dynamic fashion. And secondly, you have to have a, uh, you know, ability to maintain political dialogue with the countries where some of those convention practices are taking place. And third, you need to have uh, ability to then impose the cost of some punitive uh, policies to be able to uh, raise the cost for those countries to, uh, you know, not to crack down on the convention. What I think EU so far is good at, and I think uh, David Sullivan in particular is very good at at the moment, is that He's developing this dialogue with countries on this issue of you know, sanctions, both explaining the rationale of sanctions, explaining where the priorities are for the European Union, and of course, also uh, you know, finding out you know, whether those countries uh, have capacity to manage some of those, those convention risks. Where I think EU is not as good at the moment are uh, other two components. The first one is analytical component. You know, really at the moment, as you know, the uh, sanctions enforcement is uh, mostly the responsibility of the member states. 
uh, and the EU as a whole does not yet have, and slowly developing, but does not yet have those effective tools to be able in real time to understand how the convention evolves. And and, th and the third component to really impose the cost is also something which EU is only learning at the moment because um, we are in a situation where just a few months ago, uh, European Union as a whole did not recognize the legitimacy, the very legitimacy of the secondary sanctions that is imposing uh, other sanctions on countries that are enabling the sanction evasion of the convention. But slowly we are moving in the direction where the legitimacy is recognized. And in fact, the 11th package of sanctions even imposed some of the, of the, and even the 11th package have even imposed some of those costs. Um, so in that sense, you know, uh, EU has to first organize its own side of things. And in relations to the third countries, as I said, you know, it is only natural that the, uh, you know, those people who are running those convention networks, and they, of course, are mostly non-state actors. It's very rare, uh, maybe in, in relations to Iran sanctions, that is more prominent. But in re relations to Russia sanctions, it's private actors that, you know, base themselves, they can base themselves in Turkey, they can base themselves on Kazakhstan, they can base themselves in the UAE or somewhere else, you know, that are, you know, finding a way to, uh, you know, smuggle in some of those important technologies into Russia. And what those countries can do or should do is to, you know, make sure that they understand that those conventions are taking place in these countries and, you know, to crack down on them. And here in the EU can help some of those countries to develop tools. And Central Asia, in that sense, is a very good example because those countries initially did not even recognize that the convention took place. Then they started very actively to have a dialogue. And, and in fact, some of them have cracked down on some of those schemes. But as I said, they're dynamic. They're changing every day and the new avenues are opening every day. So you need to see it as a process and a constant dialogue. And speaking to Politico, O'Sullivan hit back at the argument that has been floated around for, well, probably almost two years now, that sanctions have actually failed to hurt the Russian economy significantly. He said, and I'm quoting here, that Russia is struggling to find the technology it needs for military kits. They have turned to Iran and North Korea, and they are currently in a serious deficit. And if you look at the performance of the Russian economy in general, it's very poor. How seriously have Western sanctions been able to hit the Russian economy? Yeah, if it's, um, from my perspective, Clearly, we have to be realistic of what the sanctions can achieve. And I think we, you know, since all those years that the sanctions are now being implemented, you know, the objectives of the West vis-a-vis -vis Russia sanctions have changed, you know. So we started uh, initially immediately after the full-scale invasion, you know, really viewing sanctions mostly kind of a symbolic, um, uh, you know, kind of, you know, something that uh, we just have to, tell Russia that it is not acceptable and we're going to impose the cost and it's a punishment. You know, then slowly over time, you know, as the sanctions have evolved and, and, and we've sort of tested waters to what extent the member states and, and, you know, the West as a whole, not just the EU, but, you know, G7 and, and many countries that joined G7 in that, you know, are prepared and willing to go further. And that then, you know, it evolved into much more strategic approach in which, you know, we are much more selective and, and much more purposeful on focusing the sanctions in areas where really we need to achieve immediate impact. Because clearly sanctions, you know, in a country like Russia, which is a G20 economy, 
uh, a country which is mostly depends on export of, uh, you know, its raw materials and commodities. And of course, you know, given that the majority of uh, countries in the world, including the key markets for Russian oil, you know, and other commodities exports do not recognize those sanctions. It would have been naive to think that the sanctions would immediately, you know, uh, destroy Russian economy or even create a substantial, um, you know, economic uh, problems that Russian economy, um, you know, goes completely into crisis. And we haven't seen that so far in the short run. But exactly as, as David Sullivan mentioned, I think that's true, that, uh, you know, uh, the sanctions are now much more focused on something which has an immediate impact on the battlefield. In fact, you know, the Ukrainian um, uh, you know, team of, uh, of experts have uh, seized quite a number of Russian, uh, you know, weapons uh, on the battlefield. They've disassembled them into many components and they created what is called battlefield list, which is, you know, about 45 subcomponents, which are absolutely critically important for Russia to be able to uh, produce its, uh, you know, not just the basic weapons, but, you know, much more sophisticated weapon systems that are making a major difference on the battlefield. And then when they looked at those components, in fact, a lot of those components are coming not from China or from Turkey. They're, in fact, coming from Western companies. Actually, the majority of them are by, by U.S. manufacturers. So again, you know, talking about the convention, of course, you know, they're not directly selling them to Russia, but the Russian, you know, clients are able to source them uh, through the parallel imports, through this very sophisticated network of the convention. So closing those gaps, in fact, are going to have much more immediate impact on Russia's ability to persecute this war than, you know, the big sanction packages that, you know, oftentimes are not, you know, going to take many, many years to to be felt, you know, on the Russian economy. And, and so I agree. I mean, where we need to prioritize at the moment is not, you know, trying to achieve kind of a macroeconomic impact, which is not really been uh, so pronounced. In fact, IMF has, uh, you know, recently upgraded uh, its forecast for Russia's economic growth for this year. So the growth was expected to be above 2% of GDP, which is, you know, quite a substantially, uh, you know, significant uh, growth, you know, even in the situation of, of sanctions. But where the priorities are at the moment is on tackling those very specific, you know, components, very specific technologies that are have immediate impact on the battlefield. And here, the West in general and European Union in particular are really making very substantial progress. We'll be moving to the polls uh, that you started to mention before in a bit. But before I want to bring Paul in and ask him the same question of how seriously, uh, Paul, do you think that Western sanctions have been able to hit the Russian economy? I think they've hit the Russian economy seriously. I think the problem is that there's, there are two different timescales. The timescale with which the sanctions are degrading the Russian economy is much longer and slower uh, than the timescale of the war. And the risk is that uh, Russia may be able to uh, prevail or at least uh, uh, preserve its uh, present advantages on the battlefield uh, long before we we're able to do sort of crippling damage uh, to its economy or to its ability to go on fighting. I think that's the real danger. Um, and um, sanctions, obviously, we, we imposed sanctions as an alternative to going to war with Russia. We won't, we, we didn't want to get into a war with Russia uh, uh, we, we, so we did two things. We agreed, uh, first of all, um, to uh, ha you know take severe economic sanctions, which are severe on our own economy as well as Russia's, as the Russians love to point out. Um, and secondly, to supply and support uh, the Ukrainians who are fighting this war. 
Um, but um, those we we impose those on restrictions on ourselves, and so far that that consensus has not changed. Indeed, if it changes at all, it's more likely that sadly the change in the direction of uh, not being so supportive of Ukraine because we feel they can't win, and therefore that they have to pushing them towards um, reaching some sort of settlement. We're not there yet, but that could easily happen. For example, if uh, Donald Trump were to win next year's U.S. presidential election. So you look at the actual Russian economy. Um, on on you know, overall, it hasn't done that badly. Um, living standards have gone down for ordinary Russians, but uh, because this is not a democracy, uh, there are no political consequences of that for the moment. Protest is not possible. Um, in some areas, it's been spectacularly damaging. I mean, the um, uh, production of, of um, uh, motor vehicles, for example, has been reduced by about 93% last year. Um, you know, there have been areas where they've been very seriously hit. But um, does that affect the war effect? Does it affect um, uh, Putin's ability to go on uh, prosecuting this war? It doesn't look like it for the moment. And as Oksana said, uh, now the IMF seeing Russia's economy growing a bit more strongly this year, and that's partly the, due to their uh, the ability that they've had to shift to a war economy footing, and therefore it's it's military um, production that is sustaining the economy now. Okay. Uh, you raise an interesting point, Paul, and I would like to bring Oksana and ask ask your perspective on it. When you said Paul that there has been no political consequences uh, because uh, Russia is not a democracy. Aksana, would you agree that there hasn't been no political consequences uh, after all two years of war, almost two years of war, for the Putin's government? Well, if we look specifically on the sanctions uh, side, I mean, usually sanctions, uh, you know, on the political uh, front, you know, sort of working in the opposite direction because they usually are used by the autocratic regimes. And, you know, whether we talk about Iraq sanctions before, or Iran sanctions, or, or all other sanctions that were imposed, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, uh, you know, all the sanctions allow the uh, authoritarian leaders to claim that they are on defensive, um, you know, sort of work to uh, uh, encourage the elites to rally around the flag. And in particular, I would say in Russia, um, you know, a lot of economic elites, you know, so-called uh, oligarchs and as well as, you know, other uh, sort of champions of uh, uh, you know, various economic uh, um, sectors of the economy, you know, they are now in a situation where they are almost entirely depend dependent on the distribution of uh, financial resources from the Kremlin because they're no longer able because of the sanctions to uh, either, you know, operate normally in the global economy as they used to do before the war um, or, you know, export many of their goods uh, abroad, for example, for many uh, companies that have been uh, put on the sanctions list. So they're now dependent on servicing that war economy. So in that sense, you know, it only contributed perhaps to consolidating them around the Kremlin. And for the population, the sanctions are oftentimes being spun by the Kremlin as something which is directed against ordinary Russian people, even though, of course, uh, you know, the West has explicitly said that this is not the aim uh, of those sanctions. They are primarily focused on, uh, first of all, of course, penalizing the regime, you know, for starting this war, but also to deprive the regime of resources to be able to prosecute the war, not specifically to impose hardship on the population. But of course, you know, the, the regime is now able to sell 
through the propaganda machine, which is very extensive, this message that the West is trying to penalize ordinary Russians and that Russia is fighting a defensive war. So in that sense, the political consequences of the sanctions have not yet been very strong. But again, returning back to what the purpose is of sanctions at the moment, and I think we are now at the phase, you know, that this period when the West was, uh, you know, imposing more and more and more uh, sanctions, kind of more quantity of sanctions is now over. I think, uh, you know, High Representative Borrell and others, you know, quite clearly stated that we now more or less reached this critical mass where it is very difficult to find more areas to sanction because we already sanctioned almost everything. And now they've been moving from quantity to quality and kind of, you know, finding a way to fine tune it to really ensure that they're enforced. Uh, and, and and in that, you know, in this area, I think it is uh, clear that, uh, you know, the, the, eventually and slowly the effectiveness of sanctions will be increased and they will be much more clearly targeted. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really been able to reach that uh, that point of, uh, of equilibrium that you were just mentioning. A fine tuning. Well, I think, as I said, it is a process. You know, this this again mentioned an enforcement of sanctions is a dynamic process. So there will always be forces because it's very lucrative, of course. Um, for example, for Russia to import many important, critically important technologies, oftentimes it costs you know up to forty percent more uh, if you do it via the parallel, so-called parallel imports. Uh, so people who are in networks that are you know enabling those parallel networks, that's a very lucrative uh, business for many, particularly coming from uh, air, you know countries outside of uh, of the West, so to speak, particularly in the global South, um, that are able to do that. Look at India, for example, which is benefiting tremendously from from playing that role of you know buying Russian oil at some discount and processing it and selling oil products, you know, to Europe and being kind of this intermediary. Um, so so in that sense, you know, we will never reach the equilibrium in which, you know, uh, we are absolutely happy that we have imposed enough sanctions and we can kind of, uh, you know, be, be happy about it. You know, it is a dynamic process. And in order for sanctions to work, you always have to be on top of it and, and to be able to close those loopholes. And, and for that, as I said, this is kind of the economic statecraft diplomacy. You need an instrument, first and foremost, almost to be able to analyze, map in the real time, uh, collect this intelligence, collect all this information and understand how those networks are changing and to be able to act very quickly. And this is not something which the European Union tends to do naturally. It's not a kind of a quick reaction institution and also is not the one which is primarily focused around kind of intelligence gathering. Um, So we're learning slowly, but I think there is clearly progress being made. I think you're going to go back to my point about the timescales. You know, there's an element of whack-a-mole about this, you know, that you, you, you close one loophole and another one immediately pops up. And that the, the, the pace at which we can do that, um, it's not clear that it will be fast enough to really have an impact on Putin's ability to prosecute the war. And that's, that's the problem. It's changing a lot of things. It's changing international trade flows. It's changing relationships among states and so on. Um, uh, but, you know, it's not clear that we're going to be able to actually uh, achieve our objective with it. Of course. And in the meantime, uh, the war is uh, fast approaching its third year. And uh, Aksana, uh, and a question that I actually had for you was whether the oil pr- price cap uh, was working. And I was curious to ask you as well, who is buying the Russian oil that is no longer flowing to Europe? You mentioned before India, who's buying oil at a discounted price. 
Uh, do you have an, uh, other examples, other countries who are benefiting from, from this? Yes. I mean, first of all, one can have to say that there is a difference between oil and gas and, and, and the European Union has not really been you know, such a major uh, uh, consumer of Russian oil compared to the Russian gas, particularly pipeline gas, which was, you know, Europe was the main uh, importer. While on the oil side, because oil is being sold at the global market, uh, you know, there was always been, you know, a, a range of clients that Russia had for, 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 for selling its oil. And China was always a very important client. You know, India is a new one, which Russia has developed, you know, at the start of the full-scale invasion, um, Russia has sold almost no oil to India. So India mostly purchased all its oil from the Middle East. What happened at the moment is that, you know, Russia, uh, Russia is now selling a lot of its oil to India, while a lot of countries, the Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and others are now supplying a lot of oil to Europe, where Russian oil is no longer flowing. So it is still part of this global market. And I think it's very difficult to see how that process can really be, um, you know, substantially controlled by policies, again, coming from a very limited set of countries, because the majority of countries, be it, you know, countries in the Gulf, kind of key oil producers or key oil consumers, China and India, of course, are biggest consumers in the world, um, you know, they are not recognizing those sanctions. But I think it is also important to point out that the purpose, uh, the, the very purpose and the objective of the oil price cap was from the very beginning is not to stop uh, Russia from selling its oil because, you know, the big byproduct of trying to remove the, you know, the second largest producer of oil in the world from the market is a major oil shock and, and, the, and the price rise, which of course only benefits Russia in that sense, right? For example, now we have this crisis in the Middle East and the oil price is again higher and, and Russia is selling less of its volumes, but it's able to buy it again, sell it again at a much higher price, well be above the oil price cap and therefore receiving additional revenues here. So the idea of the oil price cap is to be, you know, to continue to keep Russian oil on the market to avoid this, you know, substantial oil price shock, while at the same time reducing very substantially revenues for Russia from sale of oil, because of course we know that Russia, you know, being uh, given its geography, uh, you know, is uh, in, in the production of oil is much more expensive in Russia than, for example, Saudi Arabia. So, so Russia, the production maybe is above forty dollars. So if Russia selling at $60, which is a oil price cap at the moment, it, it making a very small margin because you have to also incorporate the price of transportation, insurance, etc. But of course, you know, at the moment we are in the situation where again, Russia is, you know, a step ahead. Um, what they've seen, you know, of course, very quickly as the oil price cap appeared. Uh, they uh, understood that what they need is to develop this parallel um, shadow fleet of tankers that are able to ship and transport Russian oil uh, without, uh, you know, purchasing Western insurance, without, you know, having any need to uh, uh, disclose at what price and where this oil is being sold. And, and they have uh, purchased, in fact, a lot of those tankers were purchased within the EU from, from you know, Greek uh, companies, but not only. Uh, and they have now, in a very record time, constructed a very large uh, uh, tanker fleet, the shadow tanker fleet, which is now shipping Russian oil. And of course, the downside of that is that uh, not only that they're able to sell uh, this oil at the uh, embossed 
the, the price cap, but more importantly, that a lot of those tankers are in a very poor state. They're not well maintained and they're not properly insured anymore because, you know, Russia is no longer buying or, or able to buy um, the Western insurance. So uh, they are, you know, going through, for example, the Baltic Sea, uh, they're, they're going through the Bosphorus, they're going through a number of kind of big choker kind of important areas with, with lots of population living around those areas, you know, shipping routes uh, with potential for, for example, a major ecological disaster happening without Without any insurance being offered there. So I think what is important at the moment is to really try to look at, you know, how one can, you know, address those issues, because not only that uh, it is a, you know, violation of the sanctions, but most importantly for many countries, it is a real um, uh, potential ecological, um, you know, disaster and, and a cost. So, but so far, you know, we have not really seen it. Uh, very effective strategies that can be taken to um, address those issues because ultimately it has to be taken by you know, the countries that uh, you know the coast that, that have a coastal waters through which the Russian tankers are running through, and that's you know we're talking here both the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea, which are primarily shipping areas for Russian oil. Um, and uh, you know there the individual countries, be it you know Finland or Estonia or Denmark or or or, or Turkey, if you, we're talking about the, the Bosphorus, you know it is very difficult for those countries unilaterally. You know, take those steps. And we do not have yet a mechanism for kind of a collective uh, action in that area. So, so far, as far as I can see, Russia will be building more and more of the shadow fleet. Uh, and, uh, you know, until uh, the time when we might have a major ecological disaster somewhere at the uh, very close to the shores of Europe, which is, of course, going to be potentially a very big risk. And uh, what are the the European Union and the United States doing to close the loophole on sanctions, this uh, whack-a-mole game that Paul mentioned before? And realistically, uh, in your expert opinion, what else can be done to close the loophole? Well, again, as I said, there are lots of loopholes. So, so there are lots of loopholes, and those loopholes. Are... So, is there in that in that sense, um, is there no one uh, one size fits all solution to close the loopholes? Is the the solution more more targeted? I think the solution, as I mentioned before, is to understand that this is a very uh, dynamic process. That a lot of the circumvention and uh, is run by very people who know what they're doing. You know those professional kind of networks, and therefore, uh, in order to close those sanctions loop, you know loopholes. Also, one has to be just as professional and dynamic and, and developed instruments that are able to, um, you know, clearly, uh, quickly react. And, and, and here, as I said, you know, go, I'm going back to this, for example, on the technology side, where I think it's absolutely critically important that we close those loopholes as soon as possible, given that out of 45 components, this battlefield list, which is, you know, prioritized at the moment, the majority of them are manufactured in the United States and some in Europe. We really need to work very closely with the corporate sector, you know, those manufacturers to make sure that they take much greater care, not only in ensuring that, uh, you know, they know who they're selling it, uh, those, those products to in the first instance, right? But actually being able to really follow and track this, the entire supply chain to really be responsible uh, and take ownership. Uh, of you know knowing exactly where those components are going, and we have in some areas those examples, like in the avi aviation sector, for example, where it is much harder to purchase 
some of the components because they're all tracked, they're all kind of numbered, and it's just a, a difficult uh, way to segment that. Uh, and 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 I think uh, you know this is the only way that we can do it. We have we have to to have a proper intelligence capability to be able to monitor it. We have to develop the political dialogue with the countries from from which territory some of those you know networks are running. And here, Central Asia is absolutely critically important, but also the Caucasus and 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 um, uh, Turkey, of course, and as as you also mentioned. The- of course, the Gulf and uh, the Emirates in particular, um, and uh, then, you know, act more, uh, you know, in more faster fashion. And here again, the United States with OFAC, you know, are much more agile in that sense. They're able to quickly react because they are, you know, a centralized institution, an executive institution, which is also keeping quite a lot of um, regular dialogue with businesses, both in the financial sector and the corporates, and they they. Un- Understand that they know, you know, how some of those schemes are working. While in the EU, it is a kind of a two-step process. You have to get the information. You have to go through the national member states, institutions, and mechanisms. Then you have to take it to the EU level. There has to be kind of, you know, a negotiation among member states, which always results in a compromise. And then you kind of act. But this is just not fast enough to be able to really close some of those loopholes. Well, as, uh, as Oksana was just saying, of course, dyna- dynamism is the way to go if uh, we want to be realistic about closing the sanctions. But of course, as Oksana was just saying in the end of her answer, it's it's not realistic in an union composed of 27 member states. Uh, in that sense, uh, what would you realistic, realistically say is the way to go if the European Union is serious about closing the loophole on sanctions? I think, as, as Oksana said, we have to be serious about dealing with our own companies uh, that are exporting these things. Very often when David O'Sullivan goes to Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan uh, or whatever, the first thing that he hears people say to him is, well, um, you know, what? why are we to blame if your companies are selling uh, 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 stuff that they shouldn't be selling to some intermediary. And it happens to be some business that's in our country. Um, and, you know, it's not an easy uh, question to answer, actually. So, yes, um, um, sanctions begins at home, I think is the first thing. But the second thing is, I think we've got to be realistic about what our expectations are. Therefore, the question of how much political capital do we invest in this? One of the, as I say at the beginning, one of the, the, the things that's happening is changes in global trade flows that will be long lasting. And another one, of course, is changes in global payment systems that are going to be long lasting. And the, the long term effect, I think, of this whole sanctions regime, and I support it, I support the sanctions regime, but I think one of the long term effects is that more and more countries will try to get together to bypass the dollar payments system. You can already see it happening with the Russians, the Chinese, and so on. There's plenty of, uh, uh, one of the few things that the BRICS countries can agree on is to make themselves less dependent and less vulnerable, therefore, to US financial sanctions, uh, which are the most effective weapon. Um, And with that, that's probably one of the reasons why they want to bring Iran in, because Iran arguably has the most experience of any country in coping with that, with their exclusion from Western payment systems and so on. And um, I think that's leading us to a long-term sort of bifurcation of the global economy, um, which um, the, the, you know, the West um, is probably going to have to live with. But 
we, we can't just give up the fight because it leads to that. We still have to try and uh, make our uh, uh, tightening of the noose on Russia more effective. To do so, we need to, I think, uh, as, as, as Oksana rightly said, focus on the things that are battlefield relevant, focus on the things that might affect the outcome of the war, the prosecution of the war, rather than trying to focus on the whole thing. And I'm not sure that the oil price cap will turn out to have been a particularly effective we economic weapon on our side. Let's just hope that uh, people in the Berlin Mall heard uh, what your recommendations from today. Oksana, Paul, thank you very much for your time and for joining Frankly Speaking podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.